This is Encounter on VOA. Here's Carol Castiel. Welcome to Encounter on the Voice of America. On this annual edition of the program, U.S. foreign and national security priorities and challenges for 2022. Hello again. I'm Carol Castiel. A unique set of circumstances sets the stage for 2022 from both a domestic and foreign policy perspective. January 6, 2022, marked the anniversary of the deadly assault by a mob of pro-Trump supporters on the Capitol in an attempt to overturn the victory of incoming President Joe Biden. To commemorate that dark day in the history of American democracy, President Biden addressed the nation and spoke bluntly about the impact of the horrific event. One year ago today, in this sacred place, democracy was attacked, simply attacked. For the first time in our history, a president had not just lost an election, he tried to prevent the peaceful transfer of power as a violent mob breached the Capitol. But they failed. They failed. And on this day of remembrance, we must make sure that such attack never, never happens again. President Biden speaking on January 6th, condemning the deadly attack on the Capitol one year ago, On this edition of the program, we will talk with our panelists about the impact of January 6th, as well as the major national security challenges that face the nation in year two of President Biden's administration. What is the nexus between U.S. domestic affairs and foreign and national security policy? What challenges do Russia, China and Iran pose as we enter 2022? We'll talk about these issues and many more with our distinguished experts. Corey Shockey is Senior Fellow and the Director of Foreign and Defense Policy Studies at the American Enterprise Institute, a policy group based in Washington. Prior to her post at AEI, Ms. Shockey held several senior positions in the U.S. Defense and State Departments and on the National Security Council. And Brian Katulis, he is Vice President for Policy at the Middle East Institute. That's a think tank based in Washington. He was formerly a senior fellow at the Liberal Center for American Progress, where he built the center's Middle East program. His prior experience includes work at the National Security Council and the Departments of State and Defense. And both panelists join me via Microsoft Teams. Welcome to the program. And let me begin with Corey Shockey. Corey, you know, before we address the major foreign policy and national security issues that face the country, what lessons do you take from the attack on the Capitol exactly one year ago? And what impact do these lessons have, do you think, on uh, U.S. allies and adversaries? Well, I think the main lesson is that sustaining democracy is always a challenge for free societies and that even a well-established democracy with crucial legal, institutional, and normative guardrails, as the United States has, can be demagogued into danger. So I think strengthening those legal, institutional, and normative guardrails is the challenge of our time. And it's really important and really dangerous that so many of my fellow Republicans continue to treat the insurrection of January 6th as legitimate. It's going to be really important to make possible for conservatives like Liz Cheney and the 10 House Republicans who voted to impeach the president, that they continue to be electable and that Donald Trump is held accountable for his fanning of the flames of insurrection. 
Well, thank you, Corey Shockey, for that very frank and candid analysis. Let me turn to Brian Katulis. Brian, for your take on what we can take away, so to speak, from this anniversary and apply it to how that affects our allies and adversaries. On the issue of how it impacts the rest of the world, especially our allies, the phrase I would use to describe what I've seen over the last year is strategic hedging by many of our partners. It's not new because the international system, I think, has been changing and adapting with China's rise and Russia being more assertive. But I think what has happened over the past year, especially after January 6th last year, is that many of our closest friends in Europe or in Asia and even the Middle East are looking at the political dysfunction and disarray that simply didn't end, that continues to this day. It's within the GOP, the Republican Party, but it's also within the Democratic Party. And they're starting to wonder about America's strategic reliability. Those doubts were there. I think they grew under President Trump's presidency. And even at the end of the Obama administration, there were concerns. But I think some of our closest partners look at America and see a tale of two countries. One, we still have the most vibrant and largest powerful economy in the world, most powerful military, too. Objectively, we have so many ways to shape and influence events around the world. And that's a good thing. They want to align with us. But then they see this dysfunction, in a sense, America being its own worst enemy. And they're starting to hedge, meaning that they are going to build ties with China and with other countries, depending on what part of the world they're in, because they worry that America simply may not be there the way it once was. Again, it's not a new dynamic, but it was accelerated by these events on January 6th and then the ongoing sort of grind, very divisive, fragmented politics here in America. Well, thank you for that, Brian Katulis, an excellent analysis as well as we go into the more specific challenges. You know, I refrain from giving a so-called laundry list in my introduction, but as we speak, we have Russian troops massed at the border of eastern Ukraine. We are in talks with Iran, and those are faltering over the JCPOA, the nuclear deal. We're dealing with the fallout from the Taliban takeover in Afghanistan. We're seeing terrorism spread around the world, particularly in West Africa. As Brian mentioned, a threat from China in the Indo-Pacific, the coronavirus pandemic. So back to you, Corey Shockey. What in your mind are the most important challenges to U.S. national security? Well, I do think, as Brian also suggested, that reconstituting a sense of common good in the United States is the foremost challenge and in lots of ways the most difficult challenge. But internationally, I think there are several. Managing a China that is increasingly repressive at home and aggressive internationally Parenthetically, the work of my team at AEI very strongly suggests that you can see the gears meshing for the United States to manage a stampedingly successful China. But the work of my team at AEI suggests that that's actually not the China we're looking at, that we're looking at a China that's stalling, a China whose economy is constricting and has serious challenges that will prevent its continued success. And that may actually be a more dangerous China than a successful China. A third national security challenge I think the U.S. faces 
is we have taken for granted the security of the Western Hemisphere in a way that I think is eroding and we have not yet paid enough attention to. International support for the Maduro regime in Venezuela, the increasing Iranian-Venezuelan nexus that could present actual protective challenges for the United States in a way that we have not really thought about in some time in the Western Hemisphere. And the third challenge, I think, is a Russia that is increasingly aggressive in order to cover the depth of its own failure and the way Putin is using international aggressiveness to try and reconstitute domestic support. Those are all terrific challenges that you have outlined, Corey Shockey. Let me turn now to Brian Katulis for your take, Brian, on the major challenges that face the Biden administration, that face the United States this year. I think Corey outlined them quite well. What I say is that the number one challenge America faces is the increasingly assertive roles that China, Russia, and a few other countries and non-state actors play to shape the international system. 2022, we're at the start of here, is going to be basically the end of a decade-long period of what I think has been a fragmentation in the international system, a realignment that has been ongoing, uh, stretching across several U.S. administrations. But I see this past 10-year period of a number of actors, led by China, but also including Russia, and I'd include other states like Iran and North Korea, really testing the limits of their own power and challenging the international system. So if we need to reconstitute a sense of common good here at home, there is also this notion of the global commons of an international system that I think is being strained in ways by these newly assertive actors. And it's in a couple of realms. One is militarily. We see it with China and Taiwan and the South China Seas. That's not a new thing with Russia in the Ukraine yet again. And again, this is almost like a repeat of what we saw almost 10 years ago, where these countries are really challenging and testing in the military realm and seeing whether the United States and its partners have any sense of common purpose to respond to it. So that's one big thing in that global competition. The second thing I talk about, and I really think this is a bigger challenge because it connects with our own democratic society, is the very aggressive information warfare that's being conducted every day by some of these authoritarian actors. And I think that's what becomes very difficult about our own politics here in America, is that these things get intertwined and intermeshed, that in a sense, these left-right divisions, and it's not just Republicans versus Democrats, it's internal divides in both parties, those divisions are exploited by external actors for their own purposes. I think Russia itself is the ultimate troll power. It uses what I have called troll power, which is a form of soft power that is negative, that aims to sort of confuse and stymie and paralyze societies. And in a sense, they've had a great degree of success in sort of getting into sort of those internal debates. So that's a bigger national security challenge that knows no borders because it actually then impacts things down to even what I would argue local races here in the United States, that these external actors that are much more authoritarian and repressive in their own systems exploit the openness of our systems, of our political discourse, and they exploit those freedoms as a means to sort of paralyze us and stymie us in the global picture. So I think that's a real challenge, and that's where I think it links this issue of a national common good with also the global commons and how do we actually think beyond sort of each of these individual cases in the big picture. I think that's what we're going to be facing in 2022 and much of the rest of this decade. You're listening to Encounter on The Voice of America. My guests are Corey Shockey, Senior Fellow and Director of 
Foreign and Defense Policy Studies at the American Enterprise Institute, and Brian Katulis, from whom you just heard, Vice President for Policy at the Middle East Institute. I'm Carol Castiel. This is a reminder that our Encounter podcast is available on our website at voanews.com slash encounter. You may also follow us on Twitter or connect with us on Facebook at Carol Castiel VOA. If you want to hear your name and home country on the air, please send an email to encounter at voanews.com. Turning back to you, Corey Shockey, because you both talk about this nexus of domestic and foreign policy. Brian recently brought up the pandemic of disinformation here in our country and how it is exploited by our adversaries, particularly Russia and China and Iran. Talk about the connection between how our internal divisions here in this country are exploited by the disinformation pushed by Russia and other adversaries and how much more of an obstacle that is to having a coherent and effective foreign policy. So disinformation is not really my area of expertise, so I don't have that much to add to what Brian has already said on it, other than that I agree with him. And it increases the amount of political effort that any American president will have to put towards foreign and national security policy, because there will be doubts among allies and opportunities grabbed by adversaries if they believe that the United States can't unify around a common objective. I mean, imagine trying to mobilize the country for war with our current level of division and with the active disinformation campaigns of other countries. Brian Katulis, do you have anything to add or subtract on that, a topic that you brought up, which I think is very important? Well, look, this is just a known fact that if you look at the director of national intelligence releasing a report last spring, right after the transition to the Biden administration, that declassified a lot of the efforts by not just China and Russia, but also Iran to try to shape the debates inside of America about policy. Most often it's policy related to their own interests, but sometimes it's just targeted to sow confusion and disarray. So I think a lot of the problems that we see when we see certain political actors, members of Congress and other actors, I think either mostly unwittingly or sometimes wittingly, taking talking points that sound like they're coming from other countries. You know, I think Vladimir Putin and other leaders are laughing at our political system when they see that happening because they see this new type of warfare, information warfare, having the effect that they intend, which is just to confuse the United States. And it's not an easy problem to fix because almost any single issue will be debated in a bitterly divisive way. Well, back to you, Corey Shockey. This is a year of our midterm elections, whereby the president is not on the ballot, but we have all seats of the House of Representatives and about a third of the Senate up for grabs. There may be a transition to Republican control in one or both of the houses. So if you were to advise the Biden administration, what would you advise with regard to tackling the most important challenges this year in a year that he may see control of Congress going to the opposition party? I give two pieces of advice to the Biden administration. First, there's actually a lot of bipartisan support in foreign and defense policy. If you look at the bipartisan basis on which 
the National Defense Authorization Act was passed. And in the defense realm, there tends to be a lot of cooperation. Disappointingly for the Biden White House, it's often in fixing mistakes the Biden administration made. For example, the Congress on a bipartisan basis is going to add $25 billion to the defense budget over what President Biden requested. So my first piece of advice is there's actually a lot of bipartisan agreement on foreign policy and showcasing that agreement and working constructively across party lines would be a really smart thing to do in advance of very likely losing the House for Democrats and possibly losing the Senate to Republican control. The second piece of advice I would give relates to Congress adding that $25 billion to the defense budget, which is the gap between what the Biden administration claims our policy is and what they are actually funding and the risks they are actually willing to run. That gap is actually really wide at the moment. The gap isn't new or unique to the Biden administration, but I would just point out that they have continued largely the priorities of the Trump national security strategy. And yet that strategy required three to 5% year on year increase in defense spending, which the Trump administration didn't provide and which the Biden administration isn't providing. So it's tempting our adversaries to, as Russia has so successfully done, play the gap between what the U.S. claims it's willing to do and what we're actually willing to do. Closing that gap would be a very good thing. Brian Katulis, your take on what you would advise the Biden administration to do in this year before midterms may turn control over the House and or Senate to Republicans, picking up on Corey Shockey's point that in many ways there's a lot of bipartisan support on the foreign and defense policy front. One is I'd build on the successes of the first year. When you look at where we were at the start of 2021 versus where we are now, the pandemic is still with us, but it's in a different stage. The most important story is the economic one. America's economy has revived and rebounded in ways that every other country in the world is envious of and wants to be a part of. And the Biden team doesn't really talk about this. Part of it is the measures they did in the spring with the stimulus to jumpstart the economy. And then second, with a massive infrastructure investment that'll help America compete in the world. But our economy really is cooking with gas in ways that it hadn't been for years. So telling that story to the American public and then trying to continue it in practical ways. Second, linking that economic story to the rest of the world. The Biden administration kind of has done this in Europe, trying to link our economy with the European economy a little bit more fitfully in Asia. Countries in Asia that want to align with us are just a little confused about what our economic statecraft strategy is. So I think folks like Catherine Tai, our U.S. trade representative, she's quite capable and is key to this. So I think the first two pillars would be the economy, one at home and then second in the world. Third, the military security challenges that we're facing. Pick your favorite one, but it could be Ukraine with me. I know the Middle East quite well. I think, you know, whatever happens with talks in Vienna, and I hope they succeed on a nuclear deal, I suspect it might not. An important thing would be for the Biden administration to do is to work with our closest partners and security allies in the region to actually deal with the day-to-day threats that countries like Iran, some of the terrorists, 
terrorist groups continue to pose to our troops in the region, as well as their own interests. We don't really have that coherent strategy in place. And I'm not talking about an offensive starting a new war, but just having a stronger common defense with those partners would be a third thing I'd suggest. And the Middle East is a tough arena to do this, but I think important. And then fourthly, and this goes directly to what we're doing here, (laughs) I would mount a much more assertive campaign to support freedom of thought and freedom of press around the world. Basic information, this is what VOA does. And there were periods in the U.S. strategy to try to communicate with the rest of the world where those became very politicized. I think just offering a diversity of views, making clear when other countries like Russia or China try to peddle misinformation in places like Lithuania, for instance, that America is actually going to be there not only to back their security and their political system, but also to back the media that is independent and free and trying to tell the facts as it is. And that's what outlets like VOA do all the time. But it's not nearly enough. We need more of that where people are projecting independent views that help people understand truth from lies. And quickly, as we close back to you, uh, Corey Shock, anything that you'd like to leave us with, particularly with respect to the tensions between promotion of democracy and human rights and security? Do you think that the Biden administration could do more to promote the human rights agenda, whether vis-a-vis Russia, China, Iran and other adversaries without fear that our national security would be in jeopardy? Well, I think you can always do more, but the Biden administration deserves a lot of credit for recentering American national security policy squarely on the foundation of American values. And I think that's crucial for two reasons. First, because I think it is fundamentally true that the world is a safer place when populated by states that view themselves as representative of their citizens and that hold truths to be self-evident, that people have rights and they loan them in limited ways to governments for agreed purposes. The second reason I think putting American values at the center of American national security policy matters is because I think that's the only reliable way to persuade Americans to care about what happens elsewhere in the world. If you look at what motivates American public attention, it is empathy for people trying to preserve their rights. And that really matters. And it says a lot that's great about American culture that we care about what's happening in girls' education in Afghanistan, in the rights of religious freedom and cultural uniqueness in Tibet and elsewhere. And the Biden administration has really done important work for American foreign policy and American standing in the world and American strength by arguing that our values have to inform our foreign and national security policy. Brian Katulis, you get the last word. You talked about the importance of promoting free speech and truth. Thank you for a shout out to the Voice of America. (laughs) Anything to add or subtract to what Corey said with regard to putting democracy and human rights, you know, really at the core of our foreign policy agenda, or at least trying to do more of that? Two things on that. First, we need to do a better job than we did in Afghanistan and in Syria in actually promoting those values. Some of the toughest cases, Afghanistan and Syria, are the places where it really matters the most. And we really either didn't show up in the case of Syria in a meaningful way, or we did negative things in Biden's first year and then pretended like it was a good thing. 
in my view, the Afghanistan debacle, not just the procedural way that the withdrawal took place, but the ongoing debacle of the decline of freedom and human rights, and then the way that the Biden administration talked about it as if they were ending the forever war. This was a major setback in its own agenda. It showed as hollow the rhetoric it uses on human rights and democracy, including in the Democracy Summit. It took an action that actually directly contributed to the decline of freedom in a very tough part of the world, and then portrayed it as a great success. That, to me, will be a hard thing to overcome, but there are ways to actually mitigate, even in Afghanistan or in other places, the damage done to our agenda on human rights and democracy. And then I think, secondly, just demonstrate that our own democratic system can deliver. That's one way that we can promote democracy. The dual crises of the coronavirus, which was killing about 4,000 people a day in America when Biden came into office, demonstrating by the middle part of this year that America actually really has seen tremendous progress and then communicating that progress to the American people, telling that story to the world more clearly than Biden or his team have done in the first year is a key thing that would actually help reaffirm our credibility in advancing the democracy agenda around the world. Well, I'm afraid on that note, that's all the time we have have on this edition of Encounter. I'd like to thank my terrific guest, Corey Shockey, Senior Fellow and the Director of Foreign and Defense Policy Studies at the American Enterprise Institute, and Brian Katulis, Vice President for Policy at the Middle East Institute. Encounter was produced in Washington with technical assistance from Rick Pantaleo. I'm Carol Castiel. Join me again next week for another Encounter on The Voice of America. America.